Hello, I'm Steve Usden, Washington editor of BioCentury. I'm joined today by Dr. John Tsai, head of global drug development and chief medical officer for Novartis for a conversation about how Novartis and the biopharmaceutical industry are responding to the COVID-19 pandemic. Novartis, the Gates Foundation, Wellcome Trust, started the COVID-19 Therapeutics Accelerator at the end of March. Dr. Tsai, what is it? In normal times, it would be far too soon to ask you what's been accomplished so far, but, but I have to do it. So what have you gotten done so far? Yeah, well, first, thanks for having me, Steve. It's great to be here. And these are unprecedented times, as you noted, and we've been working very closely across multiple collaborations to try to find advancements in science to help us find solutions for COVID-19. Specifically for the Therapeutics Accelerator and working closely with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, we saw how rapidly the virus was spreading, and I think it caught a lot of people um, off guard on how quickly this spread. And when we actually realized the potential of how quickly this was spreading, we started to look with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in terms of a couple of areas. In the therapeutic accelerator, there were three areas, looking at testing, treating, and prevention. And specifically, we focused on treatment because there are a number of areas, whether that would be in antivirals where we could find solutions of our existing compound library or existing library of assets that could actually help find solutions for treatment. And what we were able to do, in fact, is from our existing marketed products, we quickly advanced in three clinical studies. One was with hydroxychloroquine. Second was actually in ruxolitinib, which is a JAK inhibitor. And third was in kenyakinumab. And normally what it would take typically would be up to one year to get these studies started. We actually got these studies up and running with agreement from the FDA within a four-week period. And all three of those studies actually are advancing. So as you ask, we need scientifically valid studies that rigorously test whether there might be solutions for these patients. And currently, all three of these trials are up and running. So there's, obviously, there's a lot of controversy about hydroxychloroquine and, and a lot of need for a real rigorous study on that. When do you expect to have readouts on those three products that you mentioned? Yeah, so we started to recruit patients already. Those patients are currently actively being recruited throughout the U.S. and actually outside of the U.S. and Europe. For the hydroxychloroquine study, in fact, I think we've read all of the news. Most of these studies have been observational studies or single center studies. And in fact, there was one just recently published in the New England Journal today as we speak. And that was also in a single center. So Without a well-controlled, randomized clinical study, I think we won't ever know if this hydroxychloroquine is effective in these patients. So we embarked on a well-designed, placebo-controlled, randomized study looking at hydroxychloroquine as well as hydroxychloroquine with azithromycin, which was the early compounds that looked somewhat positive in the initial study from France. We expect to get these results in the early part of summer and hopefully have a solution for patients for COVID-19. So Novartis is also participating in other COVID-19 collaborations. There's the COVID R&D group. There's Active, the NIH collaboration. Besides keeping you on Zoom calls 24 hours a day, what's the reason for so many consortia? Are they differentiated in some fashion? 
Yeah, and you're right, because we have been involved and it does seem like the way that we work now is actually through Zoom calls or through Microsoft Teams meetings. And we're on calls, it feels like, from seven in the morning all the way until 11 o'clock at night. There are a number of collaborations. I've talked about the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. There is the Active Consortia through the NIH. There's the COVID R&D Consortia, where a number of R&D leaders across industry have gotten together. And there's also the IMI that works through Europe. And there are quite a bit of overlaps. And I think what we're going to have to get to is in terms of how do we move forward and how do we actually have a common protocol? And this is something that I think is being discussed across all of these groups, as well as how do we actually share information once we get these results available? And I think over the next couple of weeks, this is where there will be a meeting of the minds to ensure that we're openly sharing and maybe there will be one common platform so that we can actually all advance in a common understanding in a common way. And when you say a common protocol, are you talking about data sharing? Are you talking about umbrella trials or master protocols for drug testing or something else? I think it's both, in fact. So we are looking at a, an adaptive approach of trial so that we have a common protocol in terms of testing all of these drugs. As you can imagine, when the COVID crisis started, some of the endpoints for the various clinical trials differed. And it's very difficult to tell what these endpoints are if you have different results based on the different endpoints. So what we're trying to achieve here is to use a common protocol so that we can understand at what stage are these patients, are we getting common results? Therefore, we can actually find what's the best treatment for patients. And then when we do get the results that we're openly sharing these results so that we can use data sharing to ensure that we get the best outcomes for patients. One of the great things that's happened during this time is that people have been very open in terms of sharing their results. As you know, in the pharmaceutical industry, the way that we've approached it has been a very competitive mindset. But in fact, what's happened here, given the impact on patients, we feel it's utmost importance that we're open and open to share all of this information so that we can advance quickly to find the best outcome for these patients. So you're seeing, as much as anybody is, I think, the data that's coming in, and you're learning in real time about COVID-19. Based on what you know now, what are the most promising therapeutic approaches, and what are the realistic timelines for, first, for understanding what really works and what doesn't, and second, for getting something out there that's going to help people? Yeah, it's a great question because there are a number of categories. And first, maybe I'll take a step back and I'll say we've been moving at breakthrough speed. As I had mentioned earlier, some of these protocols and some of these clinical studies have actually advanced in a matter of weeks versus what traditionally would take much longer. So maybe what we can do is break these down into different categories of treatments and I think as we think about the different treatment types and the different therapies, first we should look at antiviral treatments. And the antiviral treatments out there include protease inhibitors, immunomodulatory compounds. And I think the one that's shown the most beneficial effect so far has been remdesivir. Although we've not seen a double-blind randomized control study of remdesivir, we have seen the results from the ad that has shown some beneficial effects for patients. So on the antiviral treatment front, I think that is some advancements that we're seeing. We're also seeing some non-antiviral treatments. These non-antiviral treatments 
usually are for the patients who are more severe. So for example, what you would hear about is cytokine release syndrome or cytokine storms. So in this type of treatment, often it's the patients who are already on mechanical ventilators. And how do we prevent the cytokine release syndrome and cytokine storms? And there are a number of compounds in this category, including the interleukins, the IL-6s, the JAK inhibitors, the IL-1 betas, GMCSF, TNFs. You hear a number of compounds in this category. But these compounds typically are for the patients that are more advanced, preventing them from getting worse when they're already quite severe in their state from COVID-19. Then also, probably what's gotten a significant amount of press is around vaccines. And there are a number of different vaccine types that are out there, including non-replicating vaccines, lentiviral vaccines, live attenuated vaccines, and even messenger RNA vaccines, which have advanced. I think these are gonna take a little bit longer before we actually see the results of the vaccines. And also it seems like there might be different strains and perhaps mutations of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So that's something to watch out for. And lastly in the product category is neutralizing antibodies. I think the way that I would categorize the different various treatments would be, is there a treatment type that perhaps for patients who have COVID-19 with pneumonia that could actually decrease the viral load, so prevent patients from getting worse. There would be another grouping of treatments for patients who actually are quite severe and are on mechanical ventilators that we could actually lessen the load and actually bring them back, prevent them from having the cytokine storm. And then going early, are there are some vaccines that would prevent patients from actually getting SARS-CoV-2. So this is the way that I would think about the various breakdown of treatments. You mentioned vaccines and some concern that it's going to be some time before we get vaccines. Is it realistic to think that the combination of things that you just described could tame COVID-19, turn it from what it is now into something that's much, much more manageable? Yeah, and I think we're in the acute crisis now. First, I think the vaccines will take some time, as I had mentioned previously. And I don't believe that we're going to get a vaccine within a six or 12-month period. Now, without a vaccine, will we get back to some level of normalcy? And I do believe that we will be able to get into what would be a new normal. So one example of this might be something that we could correlate to HIV and AIDS. We currently don't have a vaccine for the AIDS epidemic, but what we do have is treatment. And those treatments are allowing patients to actually have quite fulfilling lives and with antiviral therapies. And with the agents that are currently being looked at and the various different therapeutics, I do think that we'll be able to find something that would decrease the viral load on the flip side of that, I also think that there will be a different approach as we get back into the workplace or back into our social lives, which is a better understanding of how we actually practice our social distancing. And I wonder if when we get back into the workplace, that we will be shaking hands and that may be a while before we do that and whether we'll be wearing masks. I do think that there will be a new normal in terms of the way that we interact with each other. But I think eventually that we will understand better how to actually respond. Even without a vaccine, I think that we will be able to get to a new normal. Well, you're in Basel and you're actually closer to 
some kind of new normal than people in Washington, D.C., where I am, and people in the U.K. and other places that are really in the midst of things. My understanding is that Novartis and other companies in Switzerland are going to actually start inviting people back to the office as early as next week. Can you talk about how that's going to work and what your plans are for getting back to some kind of new normal? Yeah, thanks, Steve. You're right. We've seen the evolution throughout the world in different stages. First, it was in China, obviously, and quickly it, it actually came to the southern part of Europe and Italy, Spain, France, and also affected Switzerland. With social distancing, those numbers have started to come down. And in fact, here in Basel over the last week, I think there have been less than 10 cases identified in the city of Basel, which is tremendous in terms of decreasing the numbers. So starting next week, which would be May 11th, we're openly inviting the colleagues within Novartis to think about coming back to campus as people are returning to work. So this is something that we are considering. We realize that this will happen in different stages, that in the U.S., that it's currently not at a stage where we're opening up the campus. But as we get back to work, I think what you'll see around the campus is that there are different approaches. We're actually having signs around the campus of which way to walk because it's one direction in, one direction out. We're asking employees to wear masks around the campus. On the elevators, as you get into work, there's only two individuals allowed on the elevator at the same time. I currently work on the 12th floor, so I think it will either take me a while to get up to the 12th floor or I'll get a really good workout coming up on the steps, getting to my office. But these are some of the practices that we've put into place. Also, you know, I was just on a call with some colleagues in China. And what's promising is that what we saw is a number of colleagues in China actually in the same office and in the same room where we were having that teleconference. So I do think eventually that people will get back to a new state of normal. Now, I will say all the colleagues in that room were wearing masks and they were being careful about how close they were sitting to the colleague next to them. But I do think we'll eventually get back to that. And it brings up a really good question too, Steve, is not only does it impact the office, but probably the way that we'll be conducting our clinical trials moving forward. Yeah, in a positive way, are there things that you've learned as a result of this that have changed and will change the way that you do clinical research going forward, maybe for the better? And what does clinical research look like? Yeah, and I think this is a great calling for looking at turning this crisis into an opportunity. We've looked at really embedding data and digital into the way that we conduct our clinical trials. So for example, one of the things that we've done over the past year and a half to two years is infusing artificial intelligence into the conduct of our clinical trials. We've used what we call a Sense platform, and it's a platform that allows us to see where we're conducting our clinical trials and be able to actually operationalize all 500 of our clinical trials through this Nerve Live platform. During this time, we've been able to see where our impacts are from COVID-19, which sites are able to continue to recruit patients, which sites are actually not recruiting patients, and how the patients are being followed up through this entire crisis. Based on this Nerve Live platform, currently what we have is we have less than 1% of our 
clinical trial patients who have not gotten their clinical drug supply. So we currently have 96,000 patients in our clinical trials and less than 1% of them have missed their clinical supplies. In addition to that, we've used data and digital to monitor these patients. So we've gone almost exclusively to remote monitoring of these patients. So in fact, over the last eight weeks, we've had over 10,000 remote monitoring visits. That's allowed us to continue to advance our clinical studies. I will say that COVID-19 has had an impact in our clinical studies, but of the studies that were ongoing, we've seen less impact based on the digital means that we've employed. And I think this will be a new normal because there will be a greater acceptance of remote monitoring as well as digital means of conducting our clinical trials and a greater acceptance from the health authorities to enable us to conduct clinical trials through these digital means. So did you already have remote monitoring protocols in place for those trials? Or did you scramble really quickly and and put them in place for trials that would have ordinarily had clinic visits and other ways of monitoring patients? We had these capabilities previously, Steve. And what we've done is actually just increase significantly accelerating some of the clinical trials where we didn't have remote monitoring. So using the technologies that we had in place, we quickly adapted to replace most of our clinical trials and use remote monitoring. This is something that we've been building over the last year to year and a half. I think having the platform and the capabilities allowed us to scale up very quickly. Do you think that regulators are going to accept it? Switching a trial in mid-course usually isn't a good idea and they're kind of persnickety. In this circumstance, do you think that it's going to be acceptable? Yeah, quickly after we started to see the shutdown in various countries and the impacts of clinical trials throughout Europe and United States, both the US FDA and Europe, the CHMP, came out with guidances for how to conduct clinical trials. And they, in fact, have included that remote monitoring was something that they were very open to. And they realized that the impact of this pandemic is not anything that's been ever seen before. And that's been included in the guidance. So I think there will be a very high likelihood and a high tolerance for the remote monitoring moving forward. And not only for these studies, I think this will be the new normal moving forward for all of our clinical studies. And I think the next stage of this will not only be the remote monitoring, but also digital endpoints, which will allow us to think about how we do clinical studies in a different way, incorporating digital endpoints as potential endpoints for our clinical studies, which would actually open up the acceptance of some of these endpoints for approvability of new drugs. Well, that's really interesting because it fits into a pattern. We're only a couple of months into this pandemic, but it seems to have already accelerated a lot of trends that were going forward much more slowly, telemedicine, remote monitoring, things like that. One of the things that I spoke with Voss, the Novartis CEO, about a few months ago, and I know it's a big thing for Novartis, is involving patients and healthcare workers in the way that you design and implement clinical research. How have you been doing that in the context of COVID-19? Yeah, so... What we've seen so far in terms of engagement with patients and healthcare workers is the initial wave with COVID-19, the healthcare workers have been overwhelmed in many ways in terms of taking care of the patients. 
what we always do is we have a patient and caregiver principles that we've embedded in all of our clinical trials. And we've continued to listen to the patient in terms of what their needs are. Obviously, currently during this time, patients are very concerned about going to the hospital and how they actually receive their medications. And I've talked about the remote monitoring visits. We know that this is something of high concern. So we've actually turned that dial in terms of how do we address those needs in the, when we go to their homes or go to their sites and ensuring that we listen to what the patient's needs are in the way that we conduct our clinical trials. And I think that's also going to be a new normal for us. Well, thanks. That's all the time we've got today, but I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. Dr. Sai, thanks for joining me, and thank you all for listening. All of BioCentury's stories about developing theories, therapies for COVID-19, pipeline databases, public policy stories, and more are available on our website in front of the paywall at biocentury.com backslash coronavirus.